Welcome to the Ninja Lane Podcast. In this episode, we talk about basic modding techniques and how to turn that beige box into something cool. We dip into the listener mailbag, and we have a special interview with a top U.S. overclocker. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia, and with me today, I have Darren McKinn. So you've got a beige box, Dennis, an off-the-shelf PC. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? <laughs> well, it's kind of embarrassing. It can't be upgraded. It's not very pretty. And when you take it out, what do your friends say? Is that your mom's computer? <laughs> well, we can't have that. So nope. maybe you're asking yourself, what's a good way to personalize my computer? What's a good first step to get into this whole modding and upgrade scene? You know, there's a lot you can do to a beige box. You know, it's, it's an empty canvas. It is an empty canvas, and that blank canvas allows you to do a lot of different things. But a lot of people think the first step is to just ditch that non-upgradable box and buy yourself a new case. You know, and we've seen a lot of them on Ninja Lane. You know, we have the Cosmos 2, which is that super tall ultra tower of doom. We have, like, Silverstone cases, like the Raven 3, the Raven 2, the Storm Trooper from Cooler Master. We also have the Level 10 GT. So there are a lot of different cases out there, but that's only half the battle because, after all, once you've got a case, you got to make it your own. Because somebody else might have the same thing. And when you go out, let's face it, you want to be proud of your machine, just like you'd customize a car or put posters on your wall. You want your case to reflect who you are and maybe show off a little bit. All right, so what would be the first thing? Maybe cooling? Cooling seems like a good place to start. Maybe you're a little nervous about cutting your case or grabbing a Dremel and getting to work. So you want to start simple. Well, one of the really most common and easy things that I do is I rip out those cheap fans that most of these entry-level cases come with and replace them with good performance fans. And with those fans comes the option to get, you know, lights or colors or, oh man, or a customization. Or maybe even a combination, get the LED fan. The first step is to look at your case and say, how many fans and what size can I get? Well, a lot of the cases that you can get have extra fan spots that aren't populated, you know, because it's going to cost the manufacturer a little extra to put that fan in there. And most of them give you the option to have several different fan sizes. Yeah, they usually start at around 92 millimeter, which is pretty uncommon nowadays. Uh, You have the 120 millimeter, have the 140, 180, 200, 240 in some cases. So let's talk about fan choices, because you can get your fan choice to go a couple of different directions. Got performance, pure performance. Mm Mm-hmm how quiet you want it, or maybe you don't care, so how loud and fast it is, or some combination. Well, and a lot of times you can get case fans, you know, these high-pressure case fans that have a wide range of RPM support. You know, it might be down to 700 RPM up to 3,000 RPM. Those are going to be your noisy performance fans. You also have fans like the Silverstone Air Penetrator, which is more of a column of air. They're typically larger than your standard fan, but they're going to push a little bit less air, but it's going to be more directed, so you'll be able to position those fans exactly where you want them to blow. One of my favorite fans that kind of splits the difference between the two, and it won't break your budget, is the Antec Tricool fans. Not only do they light up, but they have built onto them their own fan controllers. I've actually used those fans in one of my recent mods. They were perfect, really, because I could get the color I wanted, and I could dial it down if I wanted it quiet, or if it really wasn't cooling well enough, i just kick the fan up and live with it. So a good entry-level fan, and I know you and I have both gone the quiet route also, and most recently we've talked about the Noctua fans. Oh yeah, Noctua is a great company for fans. 
I mean, that's really all they do. Well, that and coolers. But their fans are some of the best, if not the best fans, at providing you with a good, solid cooling and taking that sound down to probably the lowest possible in a fan. Yeah, they're really one of the most popular fans in Europe. Not so much here in the U.S. I'm not really sure why. They just don't really have a lot of market penetration. But when people find them, they buy the whole thing and just replace everything in their case. Well, maybe it's not unlike uh, sort of the muscle car mentality versus the European sports car in that what we look at a lot in the United States is raw power and performance, and maybe we focus a little too much on what they look like. Well, and also we have separate rooms where we usually put our computers, not always going to be in our bedroom or always in the living room. So That's true. You can always get away from the noise. You know, Dennis, not too long ago, I did a three-windowed case, a king wind that it's one of my favorite cases. And I went a little bit different direction in that I got some fans that had cold cathode lights mounted right onto them. And that had me thinking, well, maybe you've got your fans under control and you've got a windowed case or you just want to get a little light effect for yourself. So another super easy case mod is to add lighting to your case. And what kind of lights could we go with on something like that? I mean, you mentioned the cathodes on the fans, and I've also mentioned the LED fans, but what other options do we have? Well, you know, I've seen fans that have even a timed light effect to them so that you can actually get them to light up with different words. And I think you've worked with those, haven't you? Yeah, I got a couple of them from Cool Jag back in the day. And you could, uh, they had a USB connector that you would plug into the fan, and you could program the fan. It had a little bit of onboard memory on there. You can make it say whatever you wanted. It would go through, I think, 10 different sequences, you know, of whatever you wanted to have on there. So I put like the name of the site on there and then like some ASCII boobs and then the name <laughs> of the site again. And then like I even made them a couple of arrows go back and forth across the top of the fan. They were actually really fun to play with. But unless you have a nice opening, you can't see those effects. So you would have to really remove that grill that usually comes with the case. Yeah, or maybe stick it in a top exhaust location, something like that. Yeah, and just kind of have it blowing out. You know, just don't let your cat get on top of the case there. <laughs> It'll get stuck. In terms of lighting, we also have, you know, like, cathode tubes. And we also have, like, neon tubes, which are really kind of out of... They're out of popularity now. Well, it seems like... Uh, the cathode tube, which is a lot like the neon signs that you see, even though they've kind of gone out of favor, mm -hmm. the uh, the LED lighting seems to really be coming back on. You can get strips of LEDs or, or different pattern LEDs, and some of those are even programmable for different light effects as well. Definitely. And you also have the EL lighting, which is what a lot of, well, for instance, on the airplane, you know, when they say that the strips will light up to lead you toward the exit, that's EL lighting. It's actually really low voltage. It kind of lights up. It's really bright. You can change colors, and I want to say they use that in Tron on the costumes. Yeah, that's a cool effect. I'm surprised it's not making more of a comeback because, you know, you can get EL lighting in applics that will go on the outside of your case, too. Build yourself racing stripes, patterns, whatever, with a flexible form of the EL lighting. Yeah, and the best part is you can put that light wherever you want, like on the edge of your video cards, around your heat sink. You can put them on the front of the case, inside the case, anywhere you want. So these things sort of assume that you have a window in your case, which is something that people make a case decision based around very frequently. In fact, I've seen people that say what the window looks like in its location is sometimes more important than anything else about the case. Talk about vanity. <laughs> yeah. And here I am, I look at a case and it's like, if it has a window, I tr shy away from it. Because so I want to be able to cut something in there custom. I want to be able to, you know, make a star or make a Playboy bunny head or, you know, some something like that. So cutting your case, 
Maybe a, not yes. the good first step. No, but, it's a little much. But lighting and fans also lead us to some of the front panel controllers. Now, adding a controller to your front panel or your five and a quarter bays isn't really what I would say is a mod, but it does give you a good, easy way to not only control your new fans and lights, but to add sometimes some cool display options to the front. Animation, color changing, that sort of thing. All right, so once you get past the cooling aspect, you know, with your fans and lights... What can you do to the guts of your computer to actually kind of increase performance or actually just make it a little bit different? So for me, the first step inside was to upgrade my cooling. Uh, Lights and fans first, because that's easy, fast, and usually pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. But the cooling is where you really start to get a little serious about changing the way your computer performs and even how it looks. The easiest thing for me is to recommend a cool-looking heat sink and fan. Or if you're really serious and you want that wow factor, you can get yourself an entry-level water cooling kit, or what we call an all-in-one kit. That is when you get all of your water cooling components together. And a lot of our premium case manufacturers, uh, computer component manufacturers, and sometimes some surprising places can get you a cool kit that doesn't require you to know anything about water cooling other than putting it in your case. Yeah, some examples would be you know, the Hydro series from Corsair. They're one of the popular ones nowadays. Yes. You know, they have the single fan, the dual fan. I think they even have a triple fan now. They've upgraded the pump, so it actually pumps a little bit more water. But the limitations there is really the size of the hoses. And that's where, you know, if you get into a DIY sort of situation where you're assembling your water cooling kit, you can control that. But to be honest, these all-in-one kits, they cool a lot better than you know, a high-end air cooling system. And sometimes the price is not that much different between a high-end heatsink fan and one of these all-in-one solutions. I know like the H2O kit or even one of these uh, coolant kits is just a bolt-in replacement that not only gives you a nice upgrade to your performance, but they look pretty cool too. And there's something about water cooling that is just impressive especially if you don't have a lot of experience with it. It's got the wow factor, it's got the performance factor, and if you shop it right, you can get a kit that will allow you to expand in the future into more of a do-it-yourself setup. Those are the ones you really want to get. That's true. And avoid the ones that don't allow you to upgrade simple things like the water block. All right, so we've done the inside of the case. You know, and on the outside of it, you know, we still have that beige box or whatever you bought, you know, if it happens to be a, a pre-modded custom case. That's right. It might be black. It might be white. What else can we do this? Maybe change the color? Yeah, so your case is no longer beige, but maybe it's just a flat black or something else. And the reality is is that you've moved from an off-the-shelf generic case to now an aftermarket generic case. We've talked about some ways to change the way it looks and even a little bit about how it performs. But the next step is to go for broke on the outside exterior appearance. So for that, what you're going to do is go down to your local hardware store, pick your favorite I call them bomb cans, but, you know, spray can of paint, <laughs> infinite amount of colors. So, you mean, you can get chrome ones, which don't really work too well. You get metallic ones, neon green, whatever you'd like. And also get yourself some wet and dry sandpaper, which you're going to need because the outside of the cases are a little rough. Mm-hmm. When you bring it back home, you're going to want to disassemble your system because any sort of sanding that you do, you don't want it on your components. Yeah, and you definitely want to keep that away from anything that you've paid any good money for. Definitely. You know, and an easy way to test this would be to pull the front bezel off. It's usually plastic and it pops right off of the front of the case. And then rough up the outside of it with that wet and dry sandpaper. So just underneath the bezel so it won't show if you screw it up. Yep. And then you can mask it off which you don't want to have painted. Just shake up the bomb can really good. Dust it. 
You know, we wanted to do maybe three coats dusted and then just do one halfway heavy coat just to kind of give it a little bit of gloss. Let it dry for 24 hours, reassemble it, and you'll have a nice effect behind that, that metal grill. You know, let's say it's a black grill and you painted underneath it a yellow. From different angles, it will look more yellow and more black. It will kind of give it a nice little effect. And if it worked out good, take it apart again, do the same thing to the rest of the bezel, paint it all up, and there you have so paint can be a little bit daunting. I know I've done some painting and I've had some painting done. So it's important to note that if you can strip your case yourself, any good paint company, um, I think I found an auto painter last time, did my entire case for me. It took them just one day because they had all the right material. And I paid them, I think, 50 bucks, which... Really, wow, that's cheap, actually. It, it isn't that much more than going and buying a bunch of rattle cans. But in general, paint, the big rule of thumb is take your time. Definitely. I've actually done the automotive painting both on cars, motorcycles, and on a computer case. And for me, it comes down to making sure the environment is clean. You can put the, the case panel upside down on a trash can and, and paint it, and actually you have it turn out pretty good. But if it's outside and there's a little bit of wind, it's going to kick up some dust, some pollen. That's going to get in the paint job. I always set up a makeshift booth, you know, kind of drape some plastic around and kind of clean the floor, maybe put a little water down to kind of keep the dust down. And then at that point, you can quickly paint and then pull the plastic away and then the, the dust will go away and it'll dry and it'll actually turn out really nice. That's also kind of an advanced technique. Not everybody can do that. What you're doing is kind of making it sound tough. So maybe you're sitting there and you're going, wow, that sounds like that would suck. So you do have other options. You can get decals, of course, is the easy way. And a lot of the custom sites will provide you with even full case or small ones, or you can just bumper sticker it up like an old Volkswagen. <laughs> and that's a good way to make it yourself. But one thing that I've also done is I've done a full case wrap. And that's where you get vinyl and it's got a pattern already in it. And you basically clean the outside of your case and stick it on like a giant sticker and trim it to fit. You know, you do that on cars too. You can do car wraps. So it gives you that same custom painted look or maybe a custom airbrush look. Very clean without you having to go through all those paint steps. And maybe the best part is if you decide you don't like it, you can just peel it right back off. <laughs> Another option for those decals is go to a sign company and... They're going to have some of that plastic. You just take them what you want to have if you want to have your name on it, for instance. Take it down there. They can cut it out in the plastic sticker stuff, the vinyl stickers. Put it on the side of the case, and you already have your, your name on it. Yeah, and you know what? That's actually very cheap to do. In fact, some places, even our mall here, have those folks that will sell you the custom window decals. It's the same vinyl. And go in there, and instead of getting that eight dozen pictures of your family, friends, and dog for your back window, you can get a cool half-light silhouette or something put on your machine uh, for just a couple of bucks. Yeah, or sometimes free. Like, I went into, I needed an eye for my Playboy Bunny mod, and they cut me out of circle and gave it to me. Yeah, so things to investigate. Now, going back into this whole window aspect, cutting a window can be very complicated, but if you buy a case with a window, the one thing I don't want you to neglect is... How does the inside of your PC look? How clean is your install? And one good way to do that is to focus on all those wires. So what can you do with those wires? Well, you've got a couple of different options. I think uh, maybe the most important thing to remember is you're not just making the wiring pretty. You're also working on airflow and performance. Yeah, and once you add all those new fans, you need to have good airflow. Otherwise, those fans are really pointless. So I know for me, the first step usually is just to bundle the wires with some wire ties and maybe throwing in some funky colors, but I know you've done some more advanced work. 
yeah, where you take the ends off and kind of sleeve them, but that is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So, well, so you can get wire kits, sleeves that you can put on there and heat shrink them on there, get a nice pretty color match, maybe some UV. And you can also get a special tool that'll allow you to even take the ends off of those wires and replace them with custom ends, different colors, UV reactions. Yeah, but you know, that sounds like a lot of work. So, (laughs) you know, you can get something that looks just like that from NZXT and it's really just six inches of wire that's pre-sleeved, individually sleeved, plugs into the existing Molexes on your power supply. You hide those behind the motherboard, instant sleeving. Well, maybe custom cables is a subject for another day. Definitely. So I hope we've talked about some of the fun stuff that you can do just to get your case to be your own and maybe improve performance at the same time. And, you know, if you're looking at custom cooling or maybe something a little more serious, we'll come back to that. Dennis, it's been a couple of episodes at least since we've uh, revisited our listener mail, and I actually have a few good questions saved up if you're game. Cool. What do we got? Nathan writes, the ARM architecture is completely dominating the mobile market, which I definitely agree with. With Windows 8 supporting ARM, how do you see the ARM architecture affecting the PC market? Ultimately, I don't really see it changing any more than, say, when the netbook or the tablet came out. It gave users another way of accessing email and surfing the web without having to power on their big, powerful PC or computer. It also allowed people to get on the web anywhere because these computers were portable. Right. Now with you know Windows 8 and their Metro interfaces all touch, it's really designed after the smartphone mentality. You know, you have, well, anything smartphone is touch-based. They're just capitalizing on that. And then, of course, we have Tegra 3 coming into into the market with the transformer prime being one of the first devices that uses it. You know, this is a quad core processor with a fifth core that can do media encoding and they call it the ninja core, which is pretty (laughs) cool. So we have that really bringing a lot of power to these tablets, to these portable computers. Yes, that will take away a lot of what you do on your PC and the reason that you need a PC, but there's still things on the PC that you can't do on these portable devices namely large screens, full-powered games, expandability, overclocking, stuff like that. So really, I don't see it changing much more than, you know, it's already been shaken up in the past. All right, Darren, I actually have a question for you from our listener mailbag. Bring it on. All right, Jason writes, Do you think the recent increase in indie game bundles is a good thing or bad thing for indie game sales? Well, I have to tell you, I support the indie game sales because you're getting an awful lot of game for your buck. In fact, there have been several competing bundle-type sales, sometimes going on at the same time. So what is the difference between, say, an indie game and you know something from one of the big box developers? Well, the indie title gets thrown around a lot kind of loosely these days, but the core definition is these are game developers, producers, you know, a team of folks that bring a game to market that don't have the full support of like an EA games, for example. So it's usually a small budget, maybe small one person kind of endeavor, and they don't have that financial support to really bring a game to market in a really big way. And probably also the channel sales and the marketing behind. All those things require money and support, but that doesn't mean they don't have good games. So one of the things that these bundles are really causing is these folks can band together and they can sell a large group of games for really a small amount. 
And that gets a lot of exposure for the bundle, gets the game into a lot of different hands that may have never even heard of it, and they might see something they like. And then, of course, the other side effects is it brings more money and attention to the companies that make these good games, shows that they're talented, which gets them sometimes into bigger development folds and more money and bigger publishing deals, and overall just grows the industry. Cool. So just kind of going on that as well, do these people keep the money or can they donate it to charity or how's this happen? Well, that's good that you asked because the charity aspect is one of the early bundles, what's called the Humble Bundle. And what that was designed to do is give you the opportunity to actually decide where your money goes amongst some charity foundations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation or Child's Play um, are usually involved. The developers and of course the, the producers of the bundle itself. But that's just one type of bundle. There are also some indie bundles and some developer-specific bundles out there that are bringing these games to market. And that doesn't even include some of the groundbreaking work that's done through Steam and some of their bundles. Wow. It actually sounds like it's not going to affect indie bundles, but really just kind of the big box stuff. Well, the big downsides of it is the cost. These are so cheap. In fact, some of them allow you to name your price. So it kind of cannibalizes the sales to some extent. So these developers are really trading exposure and saturation really for cost and hoping, I think, that the increased exposure and the large numbers will make up for the smaller cost. So actually, as a developer, I kind of I recognize that and it's it's a resume. It is. And it's a tough gig because you don't necessarily make money on these games. So it's a big gamble that's going to pay off only in maybe a small percentage of them. But the risk is really low because the folks that are buying these games at a discount are generally people that would not have bought them in the first place. Sounds like a good thing. Darren, I think we have one more question in the mailbag. What do we got there? We do. Sarah writes, I am looking to build my first gaming computer And I'm curious to know how important overclocking is to a basic gaming computer. You talk about it quite often on the podcast, and I see it mentioned when surfing reviews of the components I'm looking to buy. And that's a great question. It is a great question, and it has multiple answers, actually. And I think we're going to tackle why she's seen overclocking on these products first, and then we can move into kind of our answer for that. So why do we see overclocking when we're shopping for components? It's mostly marketing. I mean, we have the enthusiast angle, and the enthusiast market is really quite vocal. You know, and the enthusiasts are these people that are going to push their computers to the limit. They're going to try to get the best bang for their buck. The manufacturers are catering to that group because they can get a better exposure. So you see overclocking on a motherboard or like switches that do auto overclocking. That allows people to relate to what the enthusiasts are doing in the market, and it gives them another option and another way to sell their product. So what does that have to do with a basic gaming computer? Absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, I mean, you can buy a really inexpensive video card. You can buy a top-of-the-line processor. You can buy a bottom-of-the-line processor. If you get something modern, it's going to play every game on the market. It really just comes down to how big is your monitor, how much memory do you have in the system, stuff like that. Well, there is one advantage to buying overclocker-friendly components, and that is that if you do the research, you can get a lesser component and get sometimes as much or greater performance than the more expensive component. A good example of that is some of the video cards that we've seen. The 6950. That is a great example, because if you buy the right 6950, you can overclock it up to the next level of performance or beyond, especially if you buy one with a good aftermarket or uh, upscale heatsink. Yeah, and if you're a little more daring, you can uh, 
flash the BIOS. That's true. And actually unlock the extra cores and turn it into a 6970. So overclocking on at least a gaming PC is maybe not your first choice, but it does pay to do your homework if you want to take the time. We talk a lot about competitive overclocking here at Ninja Lane, and we have a special guest on the podcast this time. He happens to be ranked fourth in the United States on Hardwarebot. I'd like you to please welcome Honda City. Hello, everybody. So what team do you bench for, Honda? I bench for Extreme Systems. And it looks like you're ranked second among the team members there. Yeah, it took me a while to get there. So how did uh, how did you get the name Honda City? Well, um, I... I drove a Honda City in the Philippines, and I love that car. I used to race with a lot of people with that car, and <laughs> when I started with the forums, I, I used that name. Cool. So, can you tell us a little about yourself? What do you do during the day, and what do you do for fun when you're not overclocking? I fix uh, imaging equipment in the hospital, and after that, I just play with the computers. Tell me, what was your first computer? I mean, mine was a Tandy 1000 SX. I mean, I'm kind of dating myself there, but how about you? Well, my dad had a 486 computer, but my first own computer uh, was uh, an Athlon 1000. I asked my dad to get me an Athlon since I, I was reading overclocking magazines before, and I said, hey, I, want, I wanted the AMD because it beats Intel and efficiency <laughs> before. I got that, and yeah, I overclocked that computer because it had the lag on some games. I was gaming before. Yeah, well, the, with the Athlon XPs or Athlon Thunderbirds before that. Oh, yes, that's the right word. They were, um, they were a little slow, but when you overclocked them, they would uh, wake up as soon as you got the memory to go really quick. Mm-hmm. And then when Enforce came out, then you could change the multiplier, which was really nice. So what do you like most about overclocking? Well, before we had the benefit of having faster games or smoother video gaming, you know. Mm -hmm. Now it's just being competitive. Kind of the challenge of getting Mm -hmm. that top score and whatnot? Yeah. Great. So what is your favorite benchmark? I mean, there's a lot of benchmarks on HardwareBot, and then, you know, you have those ones that that will give you points. But then there's also other benchmarks that, you know, are just kind of fun for testing stability or... You know, just doing fancy lights and stuff. So, what um, really is your favorite one? I like 2D benchmarks since I don't have to play with the GPU at the same time. So, 2D, and then I also like the heavy loaded benchmarks like W Prime. Oh, the ones that really stress the CPU out, yeah. run yeah. everything at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, SuperPi is still single threaded, yeah. you know, and a lot of people put a effort into SuperPi, you know, even though they have like 12 cores or 12 threads that they can deal with. They can mm-hmm. only get to use one. So what is your most memorable overclocking achievement? Um, for me, I think it's the Bloomfield i7-920. It's a fun processor. Yeah, it, it was cheap, and it was actually the first CPU that I froze with dice or dry ice. Mm-hmm. And I actually got a good world record then. For a CPU. Right. For that CPU, I mean. It was fun. Yeah. So it was just fun because it was a challenge, or was it fun because you got records out of it? Well, uh, at first I said, wow, I, I achieved number one spot for this CPU on HWBot. And I'm like, 
okay, I'm just going to push some more. I mean, I got the CPU-Z. Uh, I wanted to double your prime, but then I realized I'm limited by my cooling. So yeah. that's how I went to other cooling. Oh, right. So assuming you don't overclock your main rig, what is your daily driver? Uh, right now, uh, I killed one of my power supplies. It's an Antec Basic from Staples. <laughs> I, I killed it. Now I have the the H55 USB 3 from Gigabyte. Nice. With a 670 with a single stick of RAM. And that's just kind of what you surf the web and oh, yeah, yeah. do the forms with whatnot. Mm-hmm. Describe your typical overclocking session. You know, how do you prep your systems? How long do you spend tweaking each benchmark? I prepare like a day before the bench. And um, I use Vaseline. Uh, I actually have a t- team Vaseline. Yeah, I actually saw that on Hardware Bot. It's yeah. kind of humorous, really. Uh, everybody didn't share Vaseline before. After I learned about Vaseline, that's how I prep my boards now. Make sure the hardware doesn't die on me. Yeah. So, I believe uh, off the air you were talking to me about how you killed the board using the eraser or something like that. Yes. Uh, my first dry ice session, after a few months, I thought, hey, this is foolproof. It's waterproof. Mm-hmm. I realized then that the backside of the motherboard was getting water. It was actually rusty when <laughs> I got the board, you know, when I turned over the board. There was so much rust underneath. I said, okay, I guess that's how it killed my board. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of, of prep work, you mentioned that you do the Vaseline on the front of the board, and I'm assuming on the back of the board. Yes. Now, do you put that actually in a test bench, or do you just kind of put it on the table? Or um, I, usually, I usually buy neoprene. I have a, an inch thick of neoprene and put Vaseline on the board and then make a sandwich of Vaseline with the neoprene and the motherboard mm-hmm. and the backside's 100% waterproof. Well, yeah, with the neoprene it it tends to leak if you have if you don't have enough pressure on it pushing down on oh, it. Oh, I got enough Vaseline. Yeah. <laughs> kind of seals it up pretty good. Yes, sir. Okay, so do your sessions normally ask, last just a few hours or do you mess with the system until you get the numbers that you're really after? I have a time limit like uh, 2 to 4 hours because beyond that that Either I have too much VDIM and I cause memory errors, mm-hmm. or sometimes the socket uh, is just too cold. You, you would see that the heatsink would frost up, and the heatsink actually heats up too. So if you do mm-hmm. double prime and you have some frost on the heatsink, might damage the board. Yeah. yeah, I actually have that problem when I'm using single stage because I'll be running W prime and it will, what I call, kill the phase. So I'm running at, you know, negative 50 C and then it starts to heat up and then the phase starts to heat up and it can't keep up. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of have to prime it first so that it'll actually stay, keep with that temperature. Mm-hmm. So it'll kind of die. Well, what happens is that the water that might have accumulated on the evaporator will start to melt and makes everything wet. Mm-hmm. You get done and I got water in the socket all of a sudden. So what was your first time using LN2? Um, a friend of mine invited me. Or well, really not invited. We 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 agreed to meet up at his place, mm-hmm. and he had a two hundred thirty liter tank. His name is Travis. You probably know him. Yeah. So I was actually working at a hospital, and you know we we agreed to meet, and it was fun. I mean, I, I had dice dry ice experience prior to that, and mm-hmm. we were just pushing the six seventy that time, and. 
I had no cold bug and I, I pretty much enjoyed it because I had work records on the 672. Right. That's, so he actually let you pour the LN2 at that point or did he kind of give you pointers on like how to set up the pot and how to monitor temperatures and stuff like uh, that? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's actually the, the part of LN2 cooling that nobody ever talks about. I think it's part, you know, trade secret or their own little mm-hmm. secret, but, you know, you have to deal with temperature control and then knowing how your pot cools down and, you know, how much you need to pour to actually keep it at a certain temperature. Mm-hmm. And then you also need to know how cold the CPU needs to be to reach a certain frequency. Mm-hmm. I ran into that running the uh, the Core i7-920 where it had to be at negative 100C to be able to boot at a certain base clock. Yes. And I think it was you that told me that. I didn't mm. know that before then. Okay, yeah. What's the most insane system you've ever benched, either from a sheer size or extreme difficulty? Um, It's got to be the Lightning 580 from MSI and doing full pot on it. It took me like maybe 20 remounts to have a perfect mount and just buying lots of LN2 because it would just easily eat up LN2. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just enjoyed that benchmark because it was also challenging at the same time. I still love the 580 Lightning. Yeah. <laughs> so was that uh, just a single GPU, or were you running more than one? Uh, that was a single GPU, and I I also enjoyed that benchmark because, or that setup because I had my own pot for it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you didn't have to borrow one from somebody or anything like that. No, I actually have a, a GPU pot, but I have a custom pot for it. Oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. That's that's how much I enjoyed that benchmark. <laughs> yeah. So you've attended a few overclocking competitions over the years. What did you do to qualify for those events, and how was your experience with them? I mean, I think the most recent one was the MOA, the latest MOA, mm-hmm. and you got invited. I actually have a picture of you because it was at CES a couple of years ago. Yeah, I got invited to that, and it was quite an experience. It was the first time I was at an overclocking competition, and mm-hmm. I want to say it reminded me a lot of like a, a Texas Hold'em match. Mm-hmm. So really, how did you? In terms of the overclocking competitions, what do you like most about those? Is it, you know, just kind of being there, or um, not that particular competition? But per, uh, in general, I like competitions because there's that challenge where you have to like beat everybody and beat your own self too. Because if you if you're not disciplined in in that benchmark, you know, it, it proves that you need more, you know, more experience, more. Yeah, well, practice <laughs> along those lines. I've seen where some overclockers, well, and it really translates to drag racing, where you know you have when they're staging at the line, you always have the one driver that wants mm-hmm. to stage first, or yeah. the one driver that always needs to stage last, mm-hmm. making the other person stage first. So in the overclocking competition, I'll see some competitors where they say, "Well, we got to get the first score up always." Mm-hmm. So they just run like super high, and then they get a, a score posted. Mm-hmm. So they're the first ones on the board. Yeah. They may not win, but at that point, everybody has a benchmark to bench two. Mm-hmm. So they know that, well, we have to beat this score or we have to beat that score. Yeah. I can see the discipline aspect of that. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of, it, it's kind of a draw for me. Do you see a future in overclocking aside from the obvious hobby aspect of it? Oh, yeah. Right now, a lot of teams are growing because they see they see other members or other overclockers developing i actually have another guy that i'm trying to help and i think he's got the potential he's he's an enthusiast he loves benching mm-hmm. 
you know, if you don't have a proper mentor to help you out in the benching world, you know, the encouragement is a flat line. Yeah. If you if you tell this guy, hey, you, you know, you got to do this and that, and he's like, oh, really? And I mean, if he's encouraged enough and he's mentored enough, or anybody who's encouraged enough and mentored enough, I think the future of overclocking is, is going to be good. I know that the mentoring aspect of this is something that I was missing out on when I got involved with overclocking. I mean, I've been overclocking for years and then just recently got into the hardware bot aspect of it where I was showing off my overclocks. Mm -hmm. But then when I started getting into Sub-Zero, you know, I made a lot of early mistakes where, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't set the, the evaporator head correctly or I wouldn't insulate mm -hmm. correctly. And it was just, it was a learning curve. Thankfully, I never really blew up anything yet. I mean, it, it, that mentoring aspect, it really kind of jumpstarts you into what you need to do to get competitive and be able to actually make something that yeah. you're proud of. I mean, uh, some other teams like Team Pure, uh, I, I see that they, you know, jump in ranking. I think they have a good mentoring system. Mm -hmm. And it, it, somehow it encouraged me to mentor some other guys, some younger guys. I mean... Well, it's obviously a leader in your field. People are going to be looking up to you for that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I get messages like, hey, how do you do this and how do I do that? I'm like, yeah, you set this number or you put this on the slider and it helps them. I mean, uh, I like the feeling of encouraging people. Mm -hmm. I mean, promoting overclocking and promoting, you know, efficiency. And some people, they do that naturally. Uh, I just do it. Well, what's the benefit of doing this, right? But, <laughs> and it does help. Feels good at the end of the day. Thanks for the interview, Honda, Mr. Honda City. Hope to be passing some of your benchmarks eventually. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have any questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. To stay up to date on the latest at Ninja Lane, Please subscribe to our RSS, now available on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter or join us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2012. Thanks for listening.